Exodus chapter 12 is the introduction to us about what this theme is that we're looking at that Jesus is celebrating. It's about the Passover and we don't live in the realm of Passover anymore these days. So in order to understand more thoroughly what Jesus is doing here, what he's saying, it seemed like it would be wise to go back and look at the very first Passover briefly. We're going to read it through. I'll read it through. And I want to ask you as I'm reading it through to be diligent students of the word that you would, as we're going through that, either jot down on a note, piece of note paper or underline if you're comfortable doing that in your Bible. Some of us do that uh, ad nauseum. I've got lines everywhere. But, uh, and some people don't feel comfortable. That's fine. But I want you to think of the details here that we read about in the Passover that may be significant. Just details that stick out to you. I'm going to read a pretty lengthy piece here from chapter 12, verse 1 through 32. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boil it at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. Ye shall let none of it remain until morning. And what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it, with the belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. On the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. 
Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread, until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native to the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwellings, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families, and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, then strike the lintel, then the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door. And not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you. Just as he promised that you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you. What do you mean by this service? That you shall say it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord. Who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt. When he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the children of Israel went away and did so. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. For the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of livestock, So Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. And then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Now, I would imagine several of us... uh, at some point began to daydream or get occupied with other thoughts or perhaps fell asleep. But if you were there that day and you heard this word being pronounced, you would have been hanging on every detail. For we see that it was a matter of life and death. It is amazing to think that in every house throughout Egypt there was at least one dead body. Every household. Such was the seriousness. Now what were some of the details that stood out to you as we look at that. They may be seemingly minor. They may seem of great importance. But what were some of the details you saw? You have to speak a little louder. <laughs> okay, well, Passover? Okay, that's right. It was the Lord's Passover. The Lord passed over. Good. What else? The lamb was sacrificed. The lamb was sacrificed. Amen. For a whole week. Okay, what, what was for the whole week? The, right, the Feast of Unleavened Bread lasted a complete week. Okay, good, yeah. Children would ask, why do we do this? Uh-huh, uh, anticipating that would be the question, yeah. Why do we do this? Good. Oh, you still had to cook? Okay. <laughs> The blood had power. Yeah, good. 
What was the consequence? Do you remember, Jonathan? You would be cut off from the people. Good. Good job. You stood up there. Any others? No leaven at all in the house. Okay, they would leave hastily. Good. That's right. They ate with the staff in their hand and their sandals, shoes on, and a belt around their waist. Okay, it was an everlasting ordinance. This is great. Yeah, it began a new calendar. That's fascinating, isn't it? That's very good. I, I believe this is helpful for us because it, what is taking place here with Jesus is not something that he came up with that night, at least not with the Passover. It was the practice of the people uh, for centuries, approximately 1,500 years. And so all of this has such deep meaning and it's good for us as much as we can to immerse ourselves and, and think about these details of what they would have known right off the top of their heads. Uh, they lived this year by year. It was a special time of year to come to. Uh, I think you guys hit most of the details I was thinking of too. And it's interesting. Uh, I did, did note that on the 10th of that month of Nisan, they were to take that lamb. And they kept it for four days and then they were to kill it at twilight on the 14th. Um, you guys did a great job. Uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, introduced in verse 17. Uh, it's repeated again in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 6. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread symbolized the removal of sin from Israelites' lives. The Passover occurred on the first day of the Feast and Unleavened Bread. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, but I love what Paul did. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, he brings these things together. And he says this, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you, are, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7. This gives a priority of the work of Christ, our Passover, that must come first. It is a priority that enables and initiates our lives of response and removing sin. That's why we stay away from sin. We try to remove it from our lives. Not because it earns us the Passover, but because the Passover lamb was sacrificed for us. And it goes back symbolically to this whole thing that we read about in Exodus chapter 12. How did they know? Would they have imagined what would have happened almost 1,500 years later that the Lamb would walk and come and speak and give His life? Let's jump into this morning. And we're going to look first of all at the Passover at an undisclosed location. The disciples asked Jesus in verse 12, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? Now the killing of the Passover lamb is the sacrifice of the lamb. Some of your versions say killing some sacrifice. It was offered at the temple. 
The sacrifice was brought, the lamb was brought, and it was sacrificed at the temple. Now the day and the timing is something that I was even asked about before this morning. Uh, what do you see there? How will you handle that? That is, that, I wish I could solve that. There are so many different opinions on that. The 14th and the 15th. Uh, was it Friday and Saturday? It's significant, but it's a bit difficult to know for certain. I want to tell you of a couple of explanations that are given, and then I'll tell you which one I, I, I prefer. The first comes from Calvin. He says, Now it is universally admitted that by an ancient custom, when the Passover and other festivals happened on Friday, they were delayed till the following day, because the people would have reckoned it hard to abstain from work on two successive days. The Jews maintain that this law was laid down immediately after the return of the people from the Babylonish captivity. So there we have him speaking about if Passover occurs on Friday, they would have moved it to Saturday so they would not have had two consecutive days uh, without labor, without work. Another factor that comes into play sometimes is that you see in certain Gospels that they're using time differently where the day begins at daybreak or at dawn and goes 24 hours to the next daybreak. But we also see that there are times when the day begins at sundown and goes all the way through the night until the next sundown. So sometimes these things get confusing and the Gospels, different, the gospels use these differently. Uh, a third idea here that goes with this is that there was a Galilean tradition of celebrating Passover on Thursday. While the Judean Jews in the Jerusalem area celebrated Passover on the following day or on Friday. Now this does afford Jesus a very unique opportunity if this is true. And, and I, I tend to lean this way but I don't think we, we can stand without question on this exactly what happened. But this does afford the fact that Jesus could celebrate the Passover with his disciples which is of supreme importance as we began to unfold, unpack what happened that night. He could celebrate that Passover and it would be the final legitimate Passover and the following day himself become the Passover lamb. Hence the title this morning, the Passover lamb's Passover. The timing of Jesus' entering into Jerusalem Celebrating the Passover and being crucified on the Passover is intended by God for a purpose. It's to bring into clear focus the types and shadows of his appointed celebrations and sacrifices throughout the history of the children of Israel, I mean, children of Israel or the children of Abraham. Now this all begins to unfold with the events of the following scriptures. We see this particular idea of the Passover unfolding right before us as Jesus enters into this last two days, 48 hours essentially, of his lifetime. And it has such great significance to us. And I love the fact that it's so historical, but it is so alive and it just becomes amplified with what we see happening here on this night in Jerusalem. An unusual address is given for the Passover. And Jesus sent out two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, following him. Now this is an unusual address, and it's an unusual way to respond to the question, Where do you want us to go and prepare the, cell, the uh, Passover? Luke 22 verse 8 tells us that these two 
happened to be Peter and John. And we know throughout the Gospels and then on into the epistles throughout the New Testament, Peter and John were the most prominent of the disciples of Jesus. He sends those two guys in. Secondly, we also see that Jesus often gave assignments to his men in pairs. This follows the admonition from Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verses 9 through 10. It reads there, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Now this is a good guideline for ministry in a practical way. We see that throughout the scriptures in Mark chapter 6 verse 7. Jesus called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two. And gave them power over unclean spirits. In Luke chapter 10 verse 1. After these things the Lord appointed 70 others also. And sent them two by two. Before his face into every city. Then place where himself was about to go. And then we just saw recently in Mark chapter 11 verse 6. When Jesus sent two disciples into the city. To get the donkey colt for his entry into Jerusalem. Two by two. Is a, is a prescribed, I think, in ministry. Now, does it always happen? We have times where Paul was actually venturing uh, alone. But most of the time, he had a companion with him. We think of Paul and Barnabas all the time. Paul and Silas. Paul and Timothy. And we see the advantages, as mentioned in Ecclesiastes. But it is not exclusive. There are times when men must go it alone for Christ. And uh, then it's a time of... of where one draws closer to the Lord than ever. I'm sure many of you have felt that. I've felt that at times. When there were moments when I was the only one there. And you hunker down in prayer. And you draw near to that God of yours. And in some ways that, that is even an advantage. But if you can have another partner along. This was the example that was given here. It was also of necessity. That Peter and John do what? They go into the city. Why is that so important? Well, nowhere but Jerusalem is the sacrifice of the Passover acceptable. Only in Jerusalem. Deuteronomy 16 says, You may not sacrifice the Passover within any of your gates, which the Lord gives you, but at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make His name abide. There you shall sacrifice the Passover at twilight, at the going down of the sun, at the time you came out of Egypt. Deuteronomy 16. Josephus estimated in 66 AD, which was uh, <clears throat> several decades after this, 66 AD, he estimated that there were 255,600 lambs sacrificed at Passover time in Jerusalem. That's a quarter of a million lambs sacrificed. Now, if we place that alongside an estimate of perhaps 10 people per lamb per household, then we get about two and a half million. Now, a lot of scholars will say Josephus had a tendency to exaggerate. And perhaps he was doing that in this case. Uh, to see that many people within the confines of the, of the uh, walls of Jerusalem would, would seem near impossible. But it does give us the idea that people were flooding in there. Why? Because it was the only place you could take Passover. And it was absolutely essential in the spiritual life of a Jew. So people flocked into there because it had to be done in Jerusalem. Where is Jesus and his disciples right now? Where are they? They're in Bethany. So he sends the men into the city. 
And then the sign, the sign of the man carrying water. Now the question might be, well, why would that stand out? Surely there's uh, thousands of men carrying water. Well, there probably were not. Why? Because women carried water. Uh, chauvinistic as that might seem, the women carried the water, and it would have been odd to see a man carrying water. There were a few groups that perhaps would do that, and slaves, servants, would be required to carry water at times. So we don't know, was this a man who was a servant sent to get this water? Or perhaps it was a man from the household who intended to go out and give an intentionally obvious sign that could be noticed. Verse 14, it says, Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There, make ready for us. So the guest room. The guest room, actually the word means a break in travel. So it's kind of like a break room, or a room where you could come and lodge for a brief period of time. Because of the great influx of people into Jerusalem, these kind of rooms were very, very important. And they were located in almost every household that you would find in the city of Jerusalem. Because people would come in there and your homes would all be packed with people. Rooms like this were common and they were well used at this time of year of the Passover. And it says an upper room. That word really translated means above the soil. So it would have been a second layer or a second story room. And furnished, that Greek word means literally to spread out rugs or carpets. And remember some of the times when we've talked about the setting in, in, the, in ancient Israel. When they came into these rooms, they didn't have a lot of chairs like we have or down in our uh, fellowship hall there. They came in and there would have been uh, rugs laid around and some pillows and a low table perhaps in the middle. And that's, that's the way it is there nowadays. We came into certain rooms at times where uh, you looked around and there were, it would have been just like this. It had cushions and a few uh, rugs all over the place except for one thing. There was a television in the corner. And uh, that wouldn't have been here at this time. But other than that, some of those rooms looked just like they did then in that day. But they were to prepare. They were to set up the whole place and it was prepared for them as far as the basics and they were to make ready for the Passover. So what do you need for a Passover? First of all, we know one thing you need and that's a lamb. That lamb will be taken to the temple, sacrificed there at the temple and then a portion of it given back to the household head to bring back to the home where it would be roasted and prepared for the Passover dinner. So those were some of the things that needed to be done. They needed to set up these side dishes. There would be a side dish that was sort of like stewed uh, dried fruit and nuts mixed together, mashed together to become sort of like a stew. Uh, There would have been bitter herbs and there would have been wine there in the room at that time for this celebration. Peter and John are getting all these supplies together. Verse 16 says, So his disciples went out and came into the city and they found it just as he had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. The faithful obedience of Peter and John. They know quite, there were no questions asked. On this occasion, there is no hesitancy. Matthew 26, 19 writes, So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. And they prepared the Passover. Now, perhaps some of you have been wondering about this. And, and it's a good question. Was this a miraculous foreknowledge and sovereignty 
Or was this a well-prepared plan? One resource suggested that it is either a prearrangement or a miraculous work of God. And this may sound like the easy way out, but I say both. I think it is both. Regardless of the purpose, it is clear. There was completely here, think about it, complete non-disclosure. Before the ears of one man in that twelve, who was anxious and waiting for the nearest opportunity to betray Jesus into the hands of the Jewish authorities. Gathered within that twelve was one man that was hanging on everything that Jesus was saying. For he was looking for an opportunity to betray, betray Jesus. Jesus and his instructions, they're absolutely clear, aren't they? There's nothing cloudy about what he says. They would lead Peter and John exactly to the right place. But unless you are with Peter and John, or unless Jesus, you would have no idea where the right place was until Jesus' plan unfolded. Secrecy from Judas and the Jewish authorities, who were now hotly pursuing Jesus, was of highest priority. Jesus superintended that he celebrate with his disciples the Passover, the introduction of the Lord's Supper, and the announcement of the new covenant without interruption. Perhaps a sequence of events with the carrying of water by a man, following him to a home, entering the home, giving instructions to the head of the house. That all seems a bit strange, but it's not absolutely bizarre or supernatural. However it was, whether it was completely supernatural or prearranged, we know one thing for sure. That it was set forth and dictated by Jesus Christ. And it came just as he said it would be done. And now we come to the second part of this event. And that is the Passover of sovereignty and sin. We have a stunning announcement of betrayal in verses 17 and 18. The stunning announcement of betrayal. Verse 17 says, In the evening he came with the twelve. Now when it says twelve, it's, Basically saying they're the apostles or the disciples. Because Peter and John are already there making ready. And he brings the rest of the group in, the other ten. And they were often called in scripture the twelve. They were called the twelve after Judas hung on himself and there were only eleven. So it, this is more of a name for the group. He brings those guys in. And here's what takes place according to the Mishnah. <clears throat> There's a tractate in the Mishnah. The Jewish guidelines or directions. Uh, called the Pesachim 10. And it gives this liturgy. And I'm going to give it to you as clearly as I can. The meal included the singing of the Hallel Psalms. That's Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. And it was divided into four parts, each ending with a cup of wine. First, the family head would pronounce a blessing over the celebration and the wine, followed by a ceremonial hand washing. Secondly, after this, the food was brought in and one of the children would ask, and, and one of, I think it was James mentioned this, one of the children each year would ask, why is this night different from other nights? And in response, the father described the exodus from Egypt given in Deuteronomy chapter 26 verses 5 through 9. This was followed with the singing then of Psalms 113 through Psalm 115. In the third step, the father offered prayer for the bitter herbs and the stewed fruit 
that symbolized Israel's captivity in Egypt and the difficulty and blessing of their exodus. Then the family and guests partook of the meal, which included the roasted lamb. Now this all had to be completed before midnight, because by midnight they would conclude with the Psalms 116 through 118, and a final cup of wine, and whatever was left over of the lamb must be burned. It could not be left over after midnight. Now if we look at the scriptures this morning, we see in verse 18 of Mark chapter 14, at what point the celebration is when Jesus makes this announcement. It says in verse 18, Now as they sat and ate, which would indicate that Jesus and his disciples were at the third stage of the Passover. At this point, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. In John 13, 21, it tells us that when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in his spirit. There is a heaviness in Jesus. And in John 13, 22, it says, And the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. This shattered the celebration. They were there to, to enjoy something they'd probably enjoyed since childhood. They remembered well. But things changed abruptly. After this point, you see, Jesus had told the twelve disciples several times that in Jerusalem he would be arrested. He would be tried. He would be beaten and crucified and raised again. How much they understood seems to be very limited at least what they were allowed to, to integrate into reality. They just didn't get it all. But never had they heard or imagined that one of them would play a part in this horrific treachery. That they, one of them, 12, one of the, who had been with Jesus all this time, they'd seen the, the healings, the miraculous healings. They'd seen the water turn to wine. They'd seen... 10,000 fed on a mountainside out of a little sack lunch. They'd been on that boat, all 12 of them, when it was rocking and, and everyone thought that this was it and they were going to die. And Jesus calms the storm instantly. All of them had been with them. And yet now he announces to them, one of you will betray me. Verse 19 says, and they begin to be sorrowful. We're looking at the sobering intimacy of the betrayal. The New American Standard translates that the disciples were grieved. In Matthew 26, 22, it says they were exceedingly sorrowful. They were deeply grieved. And then in verse 19b, the second part, it says, And they began to say to him one by one. They began to say to him individually, Is it I? Is it me, Lord? This sucks the joy of the celebration completely out of that upper room. Everyone becomes instantly sober. Is it I, or even more bewilderedly, surely not I? The NIV reads, surely you don't mean me. Individually, each man seems stricken with the shallow frailty of their own faith. Let me say that phrase. They were stricken with the shallow frailty of their own faith. Does anybody know what that's like? 
those moments when you've, you've known Christ, you, you've followed Him, you, you've had those moments of a mountaintop experience, and now the frailty of your faith is almost broken. And, and you're wondering, do I have any business in this to begin with? Why does my faith seem weak? I see, I see my sinfulness. Why would, I, I could do this kind of a thing. They were struck with the frailty of their faith. And he answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. That didn't solve their anxiety one moment. It's one of the twelve. In this announcement, Jesus brings into clear focus prophecy being fulfilled. In Psalm 41 verse 9, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, he who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 41. Psalm 55, verse 12. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man my equal, my companion and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together, and we walked to the house of God in the throng. John's gospel now goes very, very personal with the next few moments. John chapter 13, verses 23 through 26. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter mentioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel of bread into that stewed juice and gave it to Judas, the son of Iscariot. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And he said to him, You have said it. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him, and Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Interestingly, it goes on to say, No one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. And it's interesting that John gives that kind of a detail. It... it, it, it uh, reveals to us how confused the situation was. He even gave what the alternative thoughts were in their minds. They had no idea. So after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out, and it was night. Oh, how devastating that night would have been for all mankind if it were not for the sovereignty that overwhelms betrayal. There is a sovereignty of our God that overcomes anything that stands in its way and can take the most wicked devices and turn them into something that brings salvation for all who will trust in God. The sovereignty that overwhelms betrayal. Verse 21 says, The Son of Man, Jesus is saying this, The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of Him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. 
The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. Luke 22 says, As it has been determined. Who determined it? The eternal, all-wise, omnipotent God determined it. And where was it written? It was recorded in his word long before this day. In Psalm 22, verse 1. A psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning. Straight from the cross. That would happen within 48 hours. Verses 7 and 8 from Psalm 22. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying. He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him. Since he delights in him. Taken from the ground level. Beneath the cross. Shortly to come. Verse 12, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax that has melted within me. You see the, the picture of that and what we see happen on the cross. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. And they divide my garments among them. And from my clothing they cast lots. It was written in detail. Hundreds of years before it would ever transpire. The Son of Man goes just as it is written. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Could it be that Christ was beaten more than any man who has ever lived? So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see. And what they had not heard they shall consider. Then turn over to Isaiah 53 and we'll begin at verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes. We are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb, as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to crush him. 
It pleased God to crush him. He has put him to grief. When you, you, Yahweh, Lord, make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days, then the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. Then he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the introduction to the next several weeks of what we are going to be going into. And we will probably read this again and again. For this tells us clearly who this suffering servant was. And it depicts to us in detail. What would transpire? Zechariah 12 verse 10. The prophet wrote. And I will pour on the house of David. And on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me. Whom they pierced. Yes. They will mourn for him. As one mourns for his only son. And grieve for him. As one grieves for his firstborn. This was in detail carried out. Calvin writes. Christ declares that all this takes place only by the will of God. And he proves this decree by the testimony of Scripture. Because God formerly revealed by the mouth of His prophets what He had determined. We now perceive what is intended by the words of Christ. It was that the disciples, knowing that what was done was regulated by the providence of God, might not imagine that His life or death was determined by chance. But the usefulness of this doctrine extends much farther. For never are we fully confirmed in the result of the death of Christ. Till we are convinced that he was not accidentally dragged by men to the cross. But that the sacrifice had been appointed by an eternal decree of God. For expiating the sins of the world. Edwards wrote, Jesus is not a tragic hero in events beyond his control. There is no hint of desperation, fear, anger, or futility on his part. You picture our Savior at this moment. And none of this is there. Jesus does not cower or retreat as plots are hatched against him. He displays, as he has throughout the gospel, a sovereign freedom and authority to follow a course he has freely chosen in accordance with God's plan. Judas and others may act against him, But they do not act upon him. Wrote Edwards. Verse 21. Second part says. And this is important. But woe. To that man. By whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man. If he had never been born. That comes from the lips of Jesus. It would have been good for that man. Had he not have been born. Again Calvin says. For though God. By his righteous judgment appointed for the price of our redemption, the death of his son. Yet nevertheless, Judas, in betraying Christ, brought upon himself righteous condemnation. Because he was full of treachery and avarice. In short, God's determination that the world should be redeemed does not at all interfere with Judas being a wicked traitor. Hence we perceive that though men can do nothing but what God has appointed, still this does not free them from condemnation when they are led by a wicked desire to sin. 
For though God directs them by an unseen bridle to an end which is unknown to them, nothing is farther from their intention than to obey his decrees. The question often comes up, was Judas held responsible while God was carrying out his plan? Yes, he was. And yet God was sovereign. Yes, he was. There is a mystery. We sang the song, Behold the Wondrous Mystery. There are many mysteries that make the, the gospel of Jesus Christ glorious. And we sit back and we know they are true. They are set forth before us. But the intricacies of how they work, we cannot begin to explain. We saw that way back in, in the book of Genesis at the end, in chapter 15, or 50, we see Joseph there, and his father has died. And the brothers are scared to death now, because they're afraid judgment day is coming. And they will be put, put to death, enslaved. Something that Joseph will take out on them. And Joseph comes to them, and, and they're pleading with him. And he says, am I God, that I should have such authority? I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, I apologize. But he says, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. How can that be? How can God use an evil work of these brothers and many other evil works that occurred in Joseph's life to bring about the saving of the people of Israel? And not only the saving of Israel, but eventually us through the son that would come. We saw that with Pharaoh in Egypt. Pharaoh was raised up by God for the purpose of that his glory, his power, should be demonstrated as he destroyed Pharaoh completely in his land through the ten plagues and then in the river or in the, in the sea, in the Red Sea as it came upon Pharaoh's men. But as we read it, we read that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And we say, well, okay, he got his just due. But then we read, but God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And we stand back and wonder, how can that be? We have a mighty God. I will not solve that mystery for you. And I don't think you will solve it either. But we know it to be true. And we know we are held responsible for our sin. And yet we know God will not be thwarted at any moment to accomplish His glory. Through us, through the heathen, through those who are closest to God, He will work. But we see here of Judas, and this ends, I, I, how else could we end this morning with a heaviness? We see here three things about Judas. Judas' end. In Matthew 27 it says, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed. And he went and hung himself. He was remorseful, but he was not repentant. He was remorseful to the point that he despised his own life. But he was not repentant. And we see Judas's memorial in Acts chapter 1. A sad memorial, verse 16. Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke before the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. 
Now this man, this Judas, purchased a field. Excuse me. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle. And all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. So that the field is called in their own language. Akel Dama. The field of blood. The memorial of Judas. Judas. And then we know of Judas's eternity. In John 17 verse 12. Jesus was speaking. While I was with them in the world. I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me. I have kept. And none of them is lost. Except the son of perdition. Or the son of destruction. That the scripture might be fulfilled. Matthew 25 verse 46. Describes the place. And these will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. Eternal punishment. Psalm 9 verse 17. The wicked go down to the realm of the dead. All the nations that forget God. 2 Thessalonians 1 9. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. In Matthew 13, 50. And throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We don't know for certain very many lives that we can say we're in, are in hell. But we can say this one is. He was a son of perdition and destruction. And what we read about is tormenting that soul and will never stop. It is a sobering thing to think about that end. And we speak about the glories of Christ and what he offers us as adopted sons and daughters. And that is something that we can never stop praising him for and thanking him for. But the truth remains there. We warn men We warn women of the reality of hell. You see, Judas was in the twelve all along. In some ways, it's kind of like he was part of the church. He was part of the group. He was there. Oh, I hope there are none of us who are like that. I read the testimony, or heard the testimony just not too long ago, where a, a man from the congregation came up to the pastor and said to him, Thank you. I realized I was a Judas. And he had been a part of that congregation for years. He had been a part of it. He had supped with everyone at meals, communion. And yet he was a denier of the authority and the lordship of Christ in his life. And he came to Christ. That's what we must do. Calvin writes... In this passage, Christ reconciles both by pronouncing a curse on Judas, though what he contrived against God had been appointed by God. Not that Judas' act of betraying ought strictly to be called the work of God, but because God turned the treachery of Judas so as to accomplish his own purpose. And yet God calls and says to all who will call upon him, he will by no means cast out. Don't let that be your past. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 25. Excuse me, verse 29. 
of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Many of us, we have, we know the blood of this covenant. Don't consider it something to be taken for granted. Don't trample the Son of God underfoot. Do not insult the Spirit of grace. Come while you have opportunity. Come and follow Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we see the end of this passage as a very sober passage. And yet it is a sober part of the most glorious work of God. In the coming crucifixion, the Passover lamb being offered on that cross. And Father, if we really could understand it, we would, we would grow pale as to what was going on in the mind and the heart of Judas and what became of him. And Father, we know that your son came to rescue us from such fates as that. Lord Jesus, we owe you everything. And for those this morning, Father, that perhaps are closet Judases that have been with the twelve, that have been with the twelve with the church for, for years, but have not surrendered the knee and repented and trusted in you. Lord, please bring them to you. Please be glorified. Lord, thank you that you have provided the way. That before this night you said you are the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And she said, truly, truly, I say to you, ever, here's my word, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into condemnation, but he has passed from death to life. We praise you, Lord. We thank you that you have provided the way. Please, Lord, anchor us down into this word as we study it for the next several weeks. As we behold the wondrous mystery the Son of God who has come to save, to seek and to save the lost. In your name we pray, amen.